Welcome to the Gateway Research Organization podcast. Research and extension led by farmers for farmers. Come grow with us. Kelly Olson is our guest speaker here tonight. Um, OLE Farms is up by uh, Athabasca and they do some uh, wonderful things with grass-based genetics. They do all sorts of, uh, uh, you know, regenerative grazing. They do a lot of corn grazing. Um, uh, really appreciative of Kelly here coming to tonight here to share his uh, expertise and wisdom with us. Uh, Kelly, do you want to say anything about your farm or? Sure. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, you know, we've been here, uh, my grandfather started here in 1911. Uh, we run a predominantly uh, purebred Angus operation, uh, about a thousand purebred cows and 600 uh, commercial cows. And we try not to do, we, we try to have the cows work for us and we're not necessarily supposed to work for them. So we try to do as much grazing as we can. We graze, try to graze corn most of the winter. We used to swap graze a lot. We've kind of switched to corn. And uh, we're trying to develop the type of genetics that work in that type of system. Excellent. Thank you, Kelly. So um, we're basically just going to kick right into this. Uh, we, we don't have any presentations. Like I said, this is a mostly networking night. And uh, we'll just kind of introduce the topic. Um, electric win winter electric fencing uh, can be an issue because we end up getting frozen ground and snow, which all acts as an insulator. So for setting those up it, there's a lot of little tricks and things to make it uh, um, you know a little more effective on the cattle because really you could have seven or eight kilovolts running through that wire and I can grab a hold of it and it doesn't really hurt. I've got basically uh, an article I wrote quite a few years ago I, I did put it on my Facebook page I will uh, put the link or I think I already did put the link in our chat box if anybody wants to go read it but uh, it's basically the five rules of winter electric fencing. So for me kind of a you know, checklist before I get in too deep into winter, I want to make sure I do, I do these five things um, for swath grazing or bale grazing or, or any other type of, you know, reason why you're going to need electric fence out there. So number one rule is to have well-trained cattle in the fall or livestock. Um, you know, summer's over, you know, things are winding down and I'm a pretty lazy electric fencer in the fall because I'm, you know, I'm getting tired of moving fence and cows are pretty well trained for it. And and that's the time not to be lazy, right? Make sure you go out there and do an extra good job and make sure those animals know that fence is super hot. Um, you know, I'll put an extra fencer out to, you know, make sure my kilovolts are nice and high or whatever I can. Just make sure that the, the herd going on to the swath grazing or, or bale grazing or whatever is, is very well trained. They know that's super hot fence. Uh, number two, I always build an uh, educational fence. So what I mean by that is close to the watering area, I'll put up usually a double wire, uh, one positive and one grounded. That way everybody comes up around the watering area and they start fighting and pushing and somebody gets pushed into that double wire and then you've got a, um, a very effective fence even if the ground is frozen. Then when they walk out into the field and they see this little single wire across the field, they, they automatically respect it because they just got zapped by one very similar to it up by the, by the water. And that way I don't have to build a double fence everywhere. Now, some years I do build a double fence, but that's another topic. Um, number three, uh, always uh, set up your second fence right away. Um, I usually leapfrog down the field. So when I'm uh, taking one down, the cows move into the next batch of bales or swaths or whatever we're doing. Um, I'm taking one down, there's already another one up. So then I'm, I make sure I go and I put that, the leapfrog it over and put the other one up right away while the cows are busy, right? They're all, you know, quite happy and content grazing. And uh, 
because if you wait and you wait until they have to move, well, then you go across the fence and you know spend 15 20 minutes setting up the next fence while the cows are all standing there looking at you pushing on that little flimsy fence so i always make sure i put that up before uh before they're ready to move um never move in the dark that's pretty obvious but uh in canada that's sometimes is pretty hard to do so um i always try and move when when there's daylight if i get stuck you know in the evening or early morning someday having to move a fence I usually go out and I bribe them with something else to distract them first. So I'll unroll a hay bale off in the corner, um, get them distracted. Then I'll go move the fence. And then when they're done the hay bale, they will wander over and, you know, wander into that new part slowly. They don't go charging in. And uh, if possible, I never give them a reason to reach under that fence. If it's swath grazing, I try not to, you know, cross, cross the swaths too much. Or bale grazing, I'll make sure the, the fence is far enough away from the, the next set of bales that there's no reason they're not tempted to be reaching under that fence. So um, that's a basic introduction. Um, what, what I try and plan for, uh, there is a couple other situations here that I'll probably explain. I'll uh, wait and wait until I get a question on it probably about a two wire fence system too. It's more work, but um, can be more effective. Um, but yeah, that's just the basic intro. Uh, Kelly, do you want to talk a little bit about what you do on electric fencing on your ranch? Yeah, okay, I, I guess I agree with all of your topics. The only thing that I don't do is an educational fence. Um, we've not had to do that, I guess. Uh, we go in and, you know, extremely important that the cows are well-trained. Um, I would use, you know, an educational fence if I had cattle that weren't used to it or whatever, but we haven't had that problem. Um, so what we'll do on a, on a typical quarter section, um, we will set up three high tensile fences with, with wood posts about 50 feet apart. Um, so in, in order to split, basically what you do is split 160 acres into four 40 acre pieces by putting up three cross fences. And then we use spoolers with step-in posts to, uh, to break those 40 acre pieces into enough feed for cows for about three days. And we all, we all always put up a back, backup wire right away because if you do have a breakout and they get through, then you have a backup wire. And if you try to put it up um, the day that you go to move them, there's too much pressure and they're too excited and they'll just, they could just push through that. The one fence that you've got. So you definitely have to do that as you, as you go. You know, we'll run up to uh, 800 cows in a group and uh, just hasn't been a lot of problems. I, I think once in a while you'll get a cow that just doesn't want to behave and that cow maybe needs to get an alternate feed source or become a feed source. Um, <laughs> so, you know, there you will get the occasional cow that way. If you've got calves on there, you might want to consider going with the second wire. Although sometimes we don't worry about it, we let them go ahead. And so, yeah, that, that's kind of how what we do and it works pretty well. I guess the big thing that I always tell my employees that, you know, you don't have to be all that smart to do this, but you got to be smarter than the cows. And if you, if you let them take charge, you know, what I see a lot of people doing, if, if they get out, they just kind of give up, throw up their hands. You just got to be persistent. You got to put them back in and you got to, you know, if they're breaking through for some reason, you just got to retrain them. 
Thanks, Kelly. Um, one of the things you said to me before, um, you, uh, you told me that when you started this, you were uh, against electric fencing. Explain that to me a little bit more, uh, how, how that changed. Well, that, that goes back about 20 years. And that was, um, you know, just I'm trying to do some rotational grazing in the summer. And I, I'm not a very um, technical kind of guy. Like I'm not a, like I'm not a, a mechanic or a, that kind of a guy. And I just had this block where the, uh, you know, I just couldn't figure this electric fencing out. But you were, I was taking too many shortcuts, probably not using, uh, well, probably the biggest problem was not properly grounding. You've got to have a really good grounding system. And, um, and, and probably at that time, I didn't have good enough fencers. But once, I, once you figured out that it could work, I mean, I had, a, you, you know, I had to change my paradigm, I guess you'd say, because I, you know, I just didn't think it worked. And, uh, but I knew, I, I realized that I had to make it work somehow in order to do the things that I wanted to do as far as rotational grazing. And then when we trans transitioned into uh, to winter grazing, like the swath grazing and the corn, by that time we had the cattle trained and uh, just, we never missed the beef, it went easy. But it's, I think the biggest problem with winter grazing or any kind of electric fencing is just getting your head wrapped around you know, that I, I can actually do this. Excellent. Awesome. Thanks. So you guys, if you want, want to start firing off questions into the chat, um, we'll start taking questions. Amber is going to kind of run that because once the questions start going, I can't follow along. So I get lost. Fire off your questions whenever you want. If you got something that comes up, uh, by all means, go ahead. Kelly, uh, I've got one question for you here. You, you, you talked about a good ground. Um, what have you found that's a, a, a good ground for wintertime? Um, well, we don't, wouldn't use anything different in the winter than the summer, but, um, but you need at least three ground rods. Um, you know, we buy those, whatever they are, 15 feet long or whatever, and get them in good and deep um, and just make sure that they're, they're hooked up right and they're working and because, you know, you, you know, you have to ground. If you have really, really bad conditions, you can go to the second wire you know, as a ground, using that or, you know, for on your pants, but the actual grounds, you've got to, you can't just take an old piece of sucker rod and pound it in the ground a couple of feet and hope that you got a, a proper ground. Okay, good, thanks. The one, uh, the one place that I found that I can do a really good ground is I usually go right uh, next to a dugout yeah. and then I can ground, you know, pound it right in, even, even through the ice, I've done it, through the ice in down into the mud and then connect onto that ground rod. Um, yeah, I've had no troubles at all there because that's uh, um, a really good ground. Even once the ice is frozen, it's still down there in the mud. You don't have to do a double wire very often. Um, I'll, I guess I should explain that to some people out there and if they've never heard of a, the double wire before. So when a electric fence, regular you know, connection in the summertime, um, the power wants to go in a circuit. So the power goes from the uh, fencer out through the hot wire, touches the animal, goes through their body, down their feet into the ground. And then that current goes in the, the moisture in the ground, basically back to the ground rod that's attached to the fencer and back up to the fencer. So that power wants to do a circuit. So in the wintertime, what happens though, that, that power comes out of the fencer, down the wire, hits the animal, goes down their feet, and then because the ground's frozen, so the, the, the water isn't very con con uh, conductive in it, 
and maybe they're standing on snow, which acts as an insulator, then the power has nowhere to go. So there's not a very powerful charge in there. Um, so the idea with a, a second wire is to ground the second wire. So the, the first wire will be the hot one, same as in the summertime. Second one will be connected to an, an, an additional ground rod. It can be anywhere along the fence. So now what happens, the power comes out of the fencer, down the hot wire, touches the animal in one spot, and then it touches the animal. If they touch the second wire, the ground wire, then the current goes through the animal to the ground wire, which now takes the current down to the second ground rod. From there, you know, six feet under, then that current goes back to the main ground rod on the fencer and back to the fencer. So what we do is we, we connect that current. Um, so that's a, a good way to do that. I always try and put the hot wire on the bottom um, and the ground wire above. That way, when they're reaching under the fence, they might get a tickle on that hot wire, right? They might feel a little bit. And if they push through a little bit further, then they hit both and then, it, then they get the big shot. Uh, but if you put the hot wire on top, then what happens is they touch the ground wire, which has no power and it, you know, nothing. And they keep pushing and pushing and pushing. And then finally they might hit both, but then sometimes they're already partway through it. So they bust, they keep going. Um, so that's the, the one system. There's another system, it's called a bipolar fencer. Now you have to get a, a certain fencer to be able to do this with. Um, my uh, 6X StayFix does it. I'm, I'm sure there's other ones that do it as well. Now this one runs a little bit different. You've got two wires still, but the fencer takes half of the power and runs it a positive charge through the hot wire. And then it takes half of the power and runs a negative charge through the, the second wire. So you don't need a ground rod for this one. Basically, it's putting pulses out both ways. So either wire they hit, they'll get half of the charge, right? It might not be that much because of the snow and the insulator and everything. But then if they ever do hit both wires together, uh, bang, they, hit, they get a big, big hit. The full charge goes through it. So that one's kind of interesting because, you know, even if they touch the negative wire or the ground wire, then they still get a shock on it. So, um, yeah, that's two different ways of doing that double, double wire. Um, so we actually have Karen Lindquist, who she's an excellent source of information all on her own there, um, that has a question. So if you want to go ahead, Karen. Hi, Karen. Hi, how are you? I'm good. Good. Okay. I got a two, two banger question for you and it's going to read what I wrote here. Um, so for both you and Kelly, what, what is the best kind of wire or hot wire and what kind of what are the best posts you've used and continue to use, will continue to use again? And are there any wire or posts that you'd never look at again because of any bad experiences? Okay, so the good and the bad. Kelly, yeah. you wanna, do you wanna talk that first? <laughs> well, um, as far as posts, we like a wood post because if you do get um, an, uh, a wire coming off an insulator, you're not gonna have a dead short. Uh, so I like a wood post. Um, we used to use um, a metal, a lot of metal posts with um, screw-on insulators, and I just found that we were getting too many shorts. Uh, on our our kind of permanent fences, like in the summertime, we use this we use just a high tensile wire on wood posts, and we do that for our our main breakdowns, um, you know, to split our quarter up or whatever. Um, but as far as uh, we like, uh, we just use the spoolers. You need the, I can't, I can't remember the, but you need one with a good wrap. There's there's better spoolers, 
you can spend a little bit more money, but some of them are better than others. Um, you got to have a spooler that'll that'll control the um, the wire so that it doesn't get wrapped around the the handle. Um, I I don't know what you call that, but there's a you can buy the cheaper ones where you know you just wrap they just wrap up, but it doesn't guide the the poly wire, and that they're no good. So and you need a good good a good amount a lot of strands of poly in the in the wire, and then if you get a lot of breakages, like if you have if you try to splice wires together, I find it doesn't work as well. The, the other thing, I guess, I just want to mention that I kind of forgot to talk about. Um, probably the most important thing I found in electric fencing is, um, is a good tester. And I expect everybody to have a tester that works here, everybody to have a tester in their pocket. Because when they come home, I want to know how much power we got in the fence. So that that is probably the thing that helped me the most. So don't go up there, move your wire, get everything set up and go home and not know how much power you've got. That's a waste of time not knowing your power. You've got to have a good, and not one of the little cheap ones you poke the little stick in the ground, a good stay fix or a good Gallagher smart, uh, smart fix tester, I guess they're called. Um, they'll tell you the amperage and the voltage, uh, definitely. So Karen, uh, for, for your question there, uh, the best posts I've ever used, I think I started probably 10, 15 years ago, starting to use the PFI um, uh, electric step-in post. Uh, the reason I like it so much is, is specifically for winter. It's got a little bit of a ledge on the foot, so the mm -hmm. very bottom. I've got pictures on my Facebook page. I just shared a bunch uh, today, so they're right at the top. If anybody, you know, if we were talking about things on here and you want to look at some of those pictures, um, you can still listen to us and you can go, you know, check out other things on your computer. So on my Facebook page, I've got a, a picture of those ones. They're a blue top post. And because that little ledge on the bottom, I can tap it with a hammer. And the tip is a little bit different. It's kind of diamond shaped. And that way you twist it a little bit, give it a little kick and a twist, and then it comes out of the ground really easy too. So I've been using that one for about 15 years and I, yeah, I won't go back. Any of the other ones, they don't have, they're not as strong. They don't have that little ledge on them. And uh, yeah, that blue top, pigtail post is the only one I use. Now, that being said, that's on my temporary cross fences. Like Kelly said before, I mean, my when I first structure my field in the fall, I'll use wood posts and high tensile wire. Um, basically, you set up your field. Um, if it's a perfect field, let's say it's a quarter section. If I was to, to divide that quarter section into four long rectangles, so I'd put three fences, you know, all the way down that quarter, Every one of those paddocks, um, the four paddocks that you create out of that is 660 feet wide. And if I'm going to put a cross fence across that, then we end up, uh, you know, it's 10 or 12 of those fence posts to carry. You're not that much um, easy to set up a, a fence, but that fall setup is a lot more important, I think. And that's, I always use wood posts and high tensile wire. And then my temporaries would be a spooler. Um, yeah, Kelly, Kelly mentioned having a, a multi-wire poly wire so you know nine wires running through it instead of three mm -hmm. um, definitely is better for conduct conductivity um, the more money you pay the better the wire you get so i haven't really found a wire um, you know that i don't like that much well no that's not true that black and yellow stuff don't ever buy the black and yellow stuff whatever it is <laughs> that stuff falls apart um, but uh, ideally i'd love to have the black and yellow because that would uh, you could see that so much better in the in the snow 
-hmm. right? I'm looking for colors, like most of them come with white. Well, that's impossible to see in the wintertime. Great in the summer, but um, I've actually taken uh, uh, spools of wire and taken spray paint to them and changed the color on them just so that we can see them in the, in the, in the wintertime. My, uh, my favorite roller is actually one of the, sorry, Kelly, one of the cheap ones. It's the Bay Guard. It's a black and yellow one where you can pop the handles off and you can interchange the spools. Uh, the reason I like that one is, is it's lighter. So if I'm carrying this thing across the field, my arms don't get quite so tired. Mm -hmm. um, it isn't a geared roller, so it takes a little bit slower to, to wind up. But if I'm walking, right, I, it, it winds up as fast as I can walk. Uh, especially if I'm on snowshoes. So, and if it ever does tangle, you just pull the handle apart. It comes apart. The untangle's done and you put it back together. So there is a picture of that on my Facebook page right now too, if you want to see it. Okay, next up we have uh, Kay Hofels. I think if you want to unmute and turn your video on, we can hear you Perfect. and see you. Yeah, so we, uh, we started corn grazing our first time actually this year. I uh, just kind of feared me and my wife both work. So we kind of thought it'd be more economical for us and, uh, you know, moving fences, you know, five to seven days rather than feeding every single day. So we tried it and we hated it. The first two weeks was an absolute disaster. <laughs> um, so we, uh, as, uh, as everyone was kind of saying there, you need to train your cows. That's huge. Uh, you know, my cows have been around some kind of small fence, electric fences around some dugouts and stuff where there's some, you know, broken wires around lakes or whatnot, but not, you know, in a higher pressure situation. And uh, they were walking right through it over top, underneath. We had some bread heifers that basically just hopped right over top, didn't even care. And it was a disaster. So uh, we actually ended up bringing them back into kind of our maternity pen, like where we calve out and in a kind of a way tighter situation put a bunch of you know it, it probably people probably thought we were crazy we put corn stalks up in a in a bale swath graze with grain and everything that we could think of to entice them to come across that fence uh to get them kind of trained and you know we did that for about three four days and it was huge we put them back out into the corn and you know you have you still have a few you know bread heifers that still don't really care and and uh, as kind of Kelly mentioned there, you just either, you find a different feeding situation for them. So we have about five, five of our cows back in a pen and uh, we just feed them every day until the corn grazing is done just to kind of keep them out of it. But uh, the, the kind of the question that I had, and, and this is another issue that we were kind of dealing with along with the cows not being tr uh, trained is, Kind of the soil that we have is not the best kind of soil we have a lot of kind of low organic matter soil it's kind of a sandy loam kind of crust on the first top two inches uh is kind of really sandy and dried out just being from cultivated and that was actually causing an insulator so you know your tester uh you put in the ground it's showing seven eight thousand volts but you can go and grab that fence and uh as uh yeah, as you're kind of saying there, you don't feel nothing. You maybe feel a slight tickle. And, but your, your tester was telling you, well, you have 8,000 volts there. The cows <laughs> could be getting blasted. But what was happening is the, the top two inches of crust because that sandy loam soil uh, is basically has no, you know, you know, has no value in it. It's just basically putting like a sheet of plywood down and standing on that. And, and uh, it was not getting through. 
So uh, I was kind of a chicken, so I made my wife do it. So sorry for all you women, but I made my <laughs> wife go and, you know, we put a screwdriver, you know, three inches into the ground to so just below that two inch layer. And I made her grab that and greater touch the fence. And uh, she got absolutely blasted. So, <laughs> and uh, you know what, we touched the, you touch the ground and then touch the fence, nothing, absolutely nothing. Just because that two inch layer of that sandy loam crust, we could not get any kind of value. So like I said, I was ready to give up. I bought every fence charger from, you know what, I ran the Gallagher 1800i with the LCD screen or the LED screen and you know spent $1,800 luckily UFA ended up taking that back and I <laughs> bought every kind of wire and I was ready to give up it was, it was an absolute disaster so we ended up going to that ground return system the two wire system um, just to get away from that and uh, it helped out uh, it helped out huge with being able to kind of get that shock and get past that sandy loam crest and not have to deal with that uh, anymore and, you know, I was talking to more and more guys. I called people from Australia that built these Gallagher systems. I was talking to people in the States and trying to figure out what is going on. And they just kept saying, add more ground rods, add more ground rods. I ran about nine ground rods, about six feet deep. And exact same, exact same problem. Yeah, galvanized rods, everything. And no, no, no change. I've had a Gallagher guy show up and did a, I shouldn't say that. I had a fencing guy show up <laughs> and uh, we did a, a demonstration one time at our place and he had this six foot ground rod sitting there, but he had this little foot and a half one that was cut off that he pounded into the ground. He said, don't tell anybody. Yeah, <laughs> It's really short, right? Um, if, to solve that problem, the first thing I would have done is built my training fence by the water, right? Because if they're getting hit by that one, it doesn't matter how much power is in that one out there. They don't even want to touch it because they get hit so hard by the one by the water. So that could have been one real, real easy fix just to your issue there. Um, and then you're not moving two wires. So. For sure. Kelly, you, you're the corn guy. Any comments on that? You kind of solved it. Well, we, yeah, like we'll, um, sometimes we'll, like we've gone with, uh, if we have a lot of snow, really deep snow, we'll like just take kind of, when we're putting up our poly wires, we'll make a trail. So you got kind of bare ground, but that I don't really like doing that, but if I have to, I'll do that. And then you, you bare grounds a little bit better. You kind of snowplow it away. The other thing, just on the, on the testers, um, you got to make sure you do, you you dead end your fence. Like don't put your fence in a circle, because then you then you you can't get a good reading off your tester. Your or your direction. You, like if you've got a short, it won't tell you where your short is. Awesome. Um, next up, we have David with New Life Organic Foods. So, David, if you want to go ahead. I was just wondering, when you do run the double wire, how far apart are you putting them, like between the hot and the ground? I try and put them as close together as I can. That way, they're more likely to bump them. But I've got to be very careful that they don't, if the wires sag a little bit, that they're not going to touch. And heads up when the hoarfrost hits because that makes them sag even more. And then all of a sudden, if they do touch though, you've got nothing, like it completely grounds out. So um, four inches, five inches, right? And then uh, probably if they bump the first one, they're gonna hit that second one pretty quick. Kelly? Yeah, I haven't really used that much. I've, I've used two wires, but just both of them hot, just to kind of keep the cows uh, from going underneath. Uh, next, we have Larry Wagner up. If you want to ask your question, Larry. Want to ask Kelly when you when you plan doing your seeding for your season for grazing in fall? Do you plan 
for how where your fences will go in advance, or do you do it as you come along? Like, do you plant leaf spaces in your corn rows for your fence, or do you knock the corn down to put your fence in afterwards? Um, we would, yeah, we wouldn't have, when we seed, we wouldn't have any fences there. We've taken them down the year before, or it may have been in a, some other kind of crop the previous year. So what we would do, um, what we've been doing lately, if we can, is just swathing uh, where we put the divider fences, I guess you'd call them. And, but you could, you could do anything. You could just go with a tractor or a quad or whatever and kind of knock it down. But I kind of like to swath it. If I, if it's, if the crop's not too tall, you know, and we can swath it, then we just get that material out of the way. And then we put our fence on a, a good, uh, I mean, I don't like the fact that we got to go out there with a piece of machinery, but we have that equipment and I just, so it, it works pretty slick for us to do that. I was wondering more about your corn grazing. Do you plan to have rows in it when you plant? Like, do you leave a, a 60 inch space to put a uh, post in afterwards and no, seed we just, crop we in just seed the, We just seed the whole, we seed the whole field and then we just go ahead and put our fence where we want to put it. So we don't, we don't leave a space where those fences are going to be. I've heard so of just guys knock that row of corn down with a tractor or something. Yeah, well, but I like I say, we we we'd make a swath. Okay, thank you. Yeah, I've heard of guys driving through it with their quad too, just to you know run a path through or they're side by side, knock it down, and then they can put their fence up after. So next up we have Liam Hamilton. Liam, if you want to go ahead. Hi. Um, just wondered for your corn grazing, Mr. Olson, uh, what is your, like the feet that you're rolling up per move? Okay. So if we split, if we split a quarter into uh, four pieces, it's about 660 feet that we would roll up. This is a real high tech version. I was figuring out how to show people this. So this is real high tech there. There's a quarter section broke up into four pieces. Each one of those would be 660 feet wide. I think that's about the right width. We've tried to on a, tried to go wider sometimes when we had, um, you know, a smaller field or whatever, and it, it gets a little. I think it's just a little bit too far. You know, I think that's about as far as you want to go. Next up, we have Jordan. Jordan, if you want to go ahead, maybe not. Uh, he asks, "What is the most durable style insulator for wood posts?" Ah, I love that question, actually. It's my favorite question. Oh, I think he's coming. My, my most durable insulator is a two-inch barb staple. Usually, I don't use insulators, uh, even summer or winter. Um, it stays, keeps my uh, high tensile wire firmly attached to my post, and I lose very little power, in, in, especially in the wintertime. Kelly, you want to speak to that? Well, we, we just use a, just a regular black insulator. I don't I think, well, I guess mostly the Gallagher ones we've been using, but I, I was interested when I saw, I was at Steve's this summer and I saw he wasn't using insulators. And I was kind of always thought you absolutely had to use them, but I'm starting to rethink that now. I always say that I'll save you a thousand dollars worth of material and a thousand dollars worth of labor and uh, just buy a little bit bigger fencer. And I don't- uh... I'll warn you though, the salesmen at trade shows really don't like us. <laughs> <laughs> Um, we had another question come in. This one is if you could, oh, I'd like to know what you look for in amp versus volt. What exactly is the difference and what number do you consider good? So when you've got a smart fix tester, 
uh, Gallagher, Stay Fix, whatever the version. You got to get the higher end ones um, that'll tell you the amp readings because a lot of the little ones where you stick a little ground rod in the ground, they're not going to tell you that. So your voltage is telling you the amount of power that's going through your fence. The amperage is telling you the amount of loss that you have. And there will usually be an arrow pointing in a direction telling you where the loss is. So um, voltage for cattle, I would like to see it above four at least. I mean, I'd love to see eight or or more, but at least above four, and then I'm usually content. Um, uh, the amperage, well, the higher it is, that means you're you're losing more. So, uh, if if I if I put my tester on the on the fence and there's you know five amperage of losses, I don't even worry about it. Uh, if there's you know 17 amperage of losses, yeah, then I start looking for a fault in the fence. So um, that's kind of where I'm at. You, you, Kelly, same thing. Yeah, that's pretty close. Um... We use a different terminology. So when I'm trying to explain it to, to different staff and we get summer students, so some of them have no experience when they come here. I talk in bars and shorts. So four bars is, you know, four volts or four whatever. And the bars would be, or the shorts would be the amount of loss. That's just my terminology. And, um, you know, like if you get the, the tester, it'll show you how many bars you've got and you can, it'll tell you that you've got 2.8, which will round it up to three. Um, then you probably don't quite have enough. Something's going on. You look at your, your what I call my shorts, and you'll see that you've got a short of 20 going down in a certain direction, and then you just gotta go look for it. And if you get a lot of grass in the summertime, you know, you're, it's, you're always gonna have six or eight. Um, next up we have Ted. Ted, if you wanna go ahead. Okay, uh, Steve, I just quick looked on your uh, Facebook page there and saw the blue pigtail you had there. And I'm curious what that insulator is that you're using to hold the second wire on. So that is a PFI post, um, Performance Fence International. It was That was bought out, I think, by some uh, company called Systems Equine. So they create that post. And there is, you, there's a bag of these clip-on insulators that they sell, you can buy with it. Um, okay. So it's, it only fits on those posts, right? If you try and buy those and put them on a, a different brand of post, it, it's not going to fit. Okay. Um, but yeah, they come with it. They're handy. You can slide them up and down. You can put four or five on there mm -hmm. um, if you had to, like for sheep or something. Um, I use those posts for the pigs in the wintertime as well, or in the late fall, early winter. And then I put two wires, but lower. So I don't even use the top. I'm just yeah. running two wires fairly close to the bottom. But yeah, it's, they come with it. You can buy them with it. So you call that a PFI? Yeah, Performance Fence International. Well, that's the current name. Like you said, they changed. Yeah, that still comes on the box. Okay. It's still called that, but I know Systems Equine now um, is the company. If you go to Systems Equine online, you can search for their pigtail post. It's like a horse okay. company now. Yep. Um, okay. Now, the uh, Champion Feeds, or not Champion, what is it now? Uh, High Pro Feeds in Westlock has always carried them for me. So. Um, well, that's a long ways for me, but that's, I'll find a place closer. I think they are actually made out of Ontario. I think they order them from Ontario now, so. Okay, good. Thank you. Next up, we have Michelle Page. Michelle, do you want to unmute and turn your video on? Chat with us a little bit about this? Uh, it's Tony, actually, but <laughs> I was... Uh... So I've got a Stafex fencer there I've been using and uh, I've got a big solar panel on it. Every once in a while I go out there and uh, the fence or the battery seems to have lots of power in it. But 
I don't know, it's almost like the fencers asleep. I end up, uh, I pull the poster, the positive off on the battery and put it back on and it seems to come back to life. I'm running, same thing I got, I run aircraft cable on my uh, permanent cross fences and I'm running the turbo wire with the rebar posts with insulators on it. But I was just wondering if you guys ever had any trouble with your Apex fencer kind of falling asleep like that at all or not? Yes. Uh, very easy answer for you. You're probably overcharging it. The Stayfix Fencer power? has a it has a safety mechanism in it. If your battery voltage gets too high, it'll shut the fencer okay. off. So okay. either get a charge controller on there, or if you get to that point again, just disconnect the solar panel for a day. Drop the voltage okay. and it should work. Kelly, you agree with me yeah. or do you use those? Sure. Uh, haven't had that issue. I do have, there is a controller on the solar panel, so it shouldn't be overcharging, you wouldn't think, but I'll have to, I'll, I'll try mm. that. Thank you. Okay. That's, that's my first guess is maybe that chargers or the controller's not working anymore. Thanks a lot. So one of, oh, thank you. Um, so one of the questions that we often get asked guys, and maybe you guys can both speak to that. I'd love to hear um, Kelly's idea on take on this too, is how what size of fencer and how many fencers would you run per property like how do you decide how much of a fencer to put on something what we basically started we've gone to a lot more fencers now than what we used to do um, this is kind of more the summertime thing because we were trying to run two miles to get to another field and then we're getting too many shots so we just uh i don't know three or four quarters would have a, each each section three or four quarters would have its own fence and then we'll shut off sections that we're not using you know maybe you know if you've got a, a fence that's doing 640 acres but you're only you know the cattle are only on one portion but we just turn the other stuff off you know we we had a you know initially we bought probably the biggest fencer we could get at the time and tried to do the whole you know all the adjoining land that we had and it just, we just had too many problems. Cause then you got to basically look over the whole farm to find a problem. I, I would, you know, two, three, four quarters, what I would, would say. I would agree, Kelly. Um, I did the same thing, you know, tried to get up to buy, you know, where you could buy that one big fencer to run the whole farm. And when you get a short somewhere, you spend two hours looking for that short cause it could be anywhere. Whereas if we've got smaller fencers that we move around, then uh, yeah, it uh, it's so much quicker. If if a fencer says it'll run 30 miles of fence, well, uh, you know I don't use insulators. I only run two miles, and uh, we got plenty of power in our fence that way. So um, the size of fencer I most common is about a three joule fencer. I found that is a, a you know for the summertime more than winter I guess, but that three joule fencer um, it can it can survive with one ground rod. Right. You get any bigger fencers, you got to start adding more ground rods. Um, easy to move around, easy to, you know, I've got a battery and a solar panel that go with it. And uh, so, yeah, you can, whatever brand name you want to use, it's fine. We use mostly Stayfix or, or uh, Speedrite. I've got some Gallagher's as well, but uh, three or four Jewel. I do have one six Jewel. That's the one I'll be using, you know, I use in the wintertime. Um, you know, set up a couple extra ground rods with it to make it, uh, a little better grounded for it, but that's also my, the six joule one's also my bipolar fencer. So it can do the, the, the positive wire and the, and the negative charge wire as well. So yeah, 
Was that the question? I can't remember what the question was. <laughs> yeah, that was it. Um, okay, and William, do you want to turn your mic on and, and ask your question? Uh, yes, do you hear me? Yeah, there we oh, go. Yeah. Uh, hello, everyone. I have a question for both of you. Uh, here, uh, uh, sorry if I'm English, I'm a French Canadian. Uh, uh, here in Quebec, we have uh, some winter, large amount of snow. Uh, I was wondering, how do you cope with uh, those winter when you have maybe two, three feet of snow? Uh, are, do you keep, uh, I know bell grazing could be a good option, but uh, do you keep uh, like a pen or closer fields that you keep, uh, can keep feeding cattle uh, when you cannot uh, make them graze in the field? Kelly, you want to start with that one? Okay. Um, so, so the question was like, what do you, I'm just going to repeat the question. You're asking why or what would you do when you have deep snow? Uh, would you have an alternate plan? So one of the reasons that we went to corn, uh, we like the corn better because it stands up through the snow. And uh, where we were getting uh, the swath grazing was really good as well. But sometimes you would get, um, you know, it'd be so deep, buried under the snow so deep that, that it, it didn't work as well. And some of it would freeze down. So we went to, we kind of change crops partially for, for that reason. So uh, the question, uh, I'm sorry, I forget, I don't see your name there, but uh, William, um, yes, yes, what, yes. What, um, what are you grazing? Uh, for now, it's uh, only uh, grass uh, like uh, uh, red clover, uh, timothy. Uh, in the I mean, area where uh, corn doesn't grow well, we only have uh, like, uh, Nine nineteen hundred UTM, uh, you know it's the same in English, like the unity for measure for corn uh, temperature, and uh, it's only a small amount. Uh, maybe I was uh, wondering to use some uh, barley silage. I know in the west there's some uh, producer they use it, uh, but here no uh, soybean, no uh, corn is uh, growing well. Okay, yeah. So you know the the, sw <coughs> the swaths like a barley swath. Would work well as long if you you know if you get too much snow, you might get have some difficulty. But um, um, and you know and as far as the corn, um, you know 1900 heat units. I I don't think we have any more than that. Okay. We're growing it, we're not getting it mature though. So, but I mean it, you got to suit it to what works for your your operation. But um, like we we will get. Like sometimes, like right now we have very little snow, but sometimes we'll get two, two or three feet of snow and towards spring. And that, that makes, it's more difficult. You definitely will lose, you won't, like even on the corn, you, you don't, you leave some behind. You got to come back in, in May and try and clean it up. If you like the residue or maybe uh, later in the, the season you can come back or? Yes, that's correct. William, I've actually had more trouble with not enough snow than I have with too much snow. What happens here uh, in our environment, we'll get a little bit of snow. You'll have like an inch of snow out there kind of covering everything. Let's say we're swath grazing and uh, a little bit of snow. Maybe there, you know, some, some winters I'm letting them lick snow for water as well. And there's not very much out there, but they've, they've got some. All of a sudden we'll get a warm spell. So it'll warm up and all that snow will melt. So all that 
you know, moisture goes into the swaths and then you get a cold snap right after. And all of a sudden we're, we've got concrete swaths. Um, like there's, uh, you can't dig your foot into them. It's so solid. So literally overnight, they're out of food and out of water. Um, that's happened to me three times over the, you know, in the last 15, 20 years. So um, I think too much snow has only happened to me about once that I actually had too much snow to graze and pulled out. So um, yeah, depends on your environment. If you're constantly in an environment that gets a lot of snow, uh, yeah, I wouldn't be, you know, planning to do too much swath grazing. Like ideally in my, my plans, if I could, you know, dormant season graze till November or December, and then I can kick into swath grazing for, you know, December, January, maybe. And then um, uh, after that, switch on to bale grazing somewhere. Okay. Because uh, normally I have any problems I have happens in, in March, you know, February or March. So we end up freezing rain or not enough snow or maybe too much snow, uh, bad weather, minus 48 weather, whatever. Um, I'd much rather be out bale grazing somewhere when, when those hit. So if I can swath graze for the beginning of the winter, awesome. And then switch to bale grazing. If, if I had a choice, that's what I'd try and plan. Okay. So the, the big problem are the mid season when you have a cold night and the other days and when the, all this stuff can go, uh, I'd say, uh, more solid and. Yeah, yeah. Temperature swings is a big issue for us sometimes. Yeah. Like a good winter when you have a nice cold and uh, all you have the fresh snow and that uh, here is not a problem. Like I, I start bell grazing this year. It's the first year I come back on the family farm and uh, it's the all in a new kind of uh, process. And uh, uh, I tried bell grazing. For now, I, we didn't have time to put the bale down in the field. So I just feeding them to cows with the tractor. And uh, the fields are closer, so not, it's not so bad. You know, some only have uh, seven, eight foot, uh, eight feet, inches of snow. Like, not so bad. But I was wondering more in like a, here in, in January, February, we may have uh, two and two inch, uh, two feet of snow uh, for months. So, but uh, no, I think it's a good idea. I have good, uh, good answers. I had some uh, people talk to me from New Brunswick. They started doing uh, this was quite a few years ago. They started bale grazing and, and they got eight feet of snow. And then they, they had to play the game of find the bales out in the field after because they had to go <laughs> dig through with a tractor and search for them. So, yeah, it doesn't always work, right? It depends. Nature can win. Oh, you, you have to adapt, but it's, it's, uh, when, you, when you know how to feel and deal with different methods, it's, it's, good, uh, it's good to know. Yep. Thank you. Uh, next up, we have Josie. Josie, do you want to ask your question? Yeah, I was just wondering if you have a... Uh preferred brand of deep cycle to use on your stay fix yeah i don't i whatever deep cycle rv marine battery i've got a bunch of what they call them uh, solar batteries right we we we're off grid so we've got a bunch of solar batteries that i've we actually took them out of our our shop system and replaced we bought new batteries so now i've got all these old solar batteries that i still use for fencers so um yeah i i don't really have a preferred brand Kelly? We just buy a like an RV battery, I guess what they call it. I guess it's important to, to explain to other people, though, that you should use a deep cycle battery, an RV or marine battery, or a solar battery, because they charge differently than a, you know, a truck battery. A truck battery is meant to charge really fast with the alternator, um, whereas a deep cycle is meant to charge slowly, but it also... Um, uh, is, is drained down slowly. A truck battery, you let it die too many times, it's going to wreck the battery. 
the deep cycle batteries are meant to drain down and then charge up slowly and drain down. So um, definitely for an electric fence or solar system, you, you want to use a deep cycle or a, you know, an RV or a marine battery. Do you, uh, in the winter when you're doing your moves, do you run solar panels on them or do you just swap batteries out? I've got solar panels on them. Kelly? Uh, we've, we've got mostly plug-in fencers, but we do, we do use a couple of solars. Do you, do you like double or triple up batteries with the shorter days or just bigger panels? We, we, uh, haven't, we haven't had to. Yeah, if you're plugged in, you don't need to. If you're, if you're uh, you know, going from summertime, it starts in about uh, end of August, early September, we start losing sunlight and you really start to notice your, your uh, batteries aren't charged up enough. Every vehicle I have has a 12 volt battery tester in it. So I just keep checking them, right? If those batteries start to drop, then I, okay, it's time to bring another panel and I'll, you know, I've got a bunch, I've got a whole bunch of used solar panels all over the place. So I'll just grab another one. Either I'll grab a bigger one and bring it and replace it, or I'll just grab another small one and add it to it. So we'll start doubling it. I mean, uh, you know, a three joule fencer in the summertime, it needs for every joule uh, of power your fencer has, you need 10 watts of solar panel. So a three joule fencer will need at least a 30 watt panel. Um, but as soon as September runs, I wanna double that. So then I want about 60 watts out there. And once you're in the middle of winter, uh, 110, 120, 150 watt panel, um, and it still might go dead on you. So um, yeah. I really bump it up once we hit you know, December and January. I've got a 100 watts on a six joule charger and I had to it's charge the batteries today. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, you need a lot more power out there in the wintertime. All right, thanks. Thanks for doing you this. You bet. Awesome, thank you. Uh, so we just had a comment here. Paul Dubay said that he has sourced orange polybraid wire from PowerFlex as an FYI. Um, so thanks, Paul. And if anyone's interested in that, maybe send him a message here in chat. The next person up is Samuel Turcott. Do you want to... Just ask your question then, Samuel. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Merry Christmas to everybody in advance, by the way. Uh, I was wondering, like, does some of you guys use uh, galvanized steel wire uh, to doing your fence, all those kind of stuff? Like, because I know that back in the days with my dad, we used to uh, run that and we let the, the fence there during winter time just on the ground. But I'm I'm wondering if it's a common thing like back where you like where you at in Western Canada is those guys who are using electric fence to just use like a galvanized uh, fence without barber wire and just let it on the ground like during winter or vice versa if you're in springtime or you're using it or whatever like because yeah. I used to do that back home but I'm not sure like I live now in Alberta but I'm not sure if it's the it's a thing that people do around here. Kelly, you want to tackle that first? Well, I'm just not real clear on the question. So you're, you're using a galvanized wire and you're wondering if you can just leave it on the ground? Yeah, or like back, home, back in the days with my dad, uh, we used to use that like uh, during summertime when we were grazing with effort, we were letting like the wire on the ground during uh, winter time because we know that anyway, we didn't use those pasture to, uh, to graze or whatever. So 
uh, and during summertime or sometimes we were rolling up back like in a big roll and uh, during summertime uh, or springtime at the same time that we were looking at our uh, drain we were doing our spring walk and uh, just uh, put it back on the fence like as a as a straight fence but uh, I was wondering if it's a common practice here or not at all but we would yeah like you know any wire any any fence that we're not going to leave up permanently like if it's a say a high tensile wire we we have a roller that will roll it back up so we would roll the fences back up and then reuse that wire okay i have done that in the past um but i won't leave it where it was sitting so when i've got those you know those four rectangles in my field um th those i usually use wood posts and high tensile wire yep. um and where's my little map? There's my little map. Anybody see that? So um, those three and down the middle would be the high tensile wires that I've actually rolled up or uh, uh, grabbed onto the end of it. And then I'll drag it around the outside perimeter fence. And then I'll run it right along the sides. Because I'm on a lot of, you know, on a grain farmer's field, he's going to want to get in there and seed all that in the spring if I'm swath grazing. So I'll, I'll run it down the edge of the fence and just make sure it's tucked right against those posts. And then the next winter, if we're there again, then we can, you know, pull them back out and set it up again. Um, in that case, yeah, those are high tensile wire that I don't roll up. Um, but then my cross fencing that I'm moving every day out there is the poly wire that we're going to roll up all the time. Okay, and I'm curious as well. Like, do you use your U nails uh, on those uh, on those galvanized wire when you uh, kind of isolate? Uh... You want to isolate from the like? Do you use like you uh, you galvanize nails as well on those wire as well, or not not at all? Yeah, I just use a regular fencing staple to okay. hold them on. Yep, you bet. And it worked. You bet. Uh, eight eight and a half nine kilovolts through my wire. Okay. It'll hurt. Um, next up, uh, Kevin asked, "Can Kelly talk more about the stage of maturity of the corn he raises? It's a new concept to him." So yeah, Kevin, Kelly, if you could talk about okay, that. Okay, um, so we're we're fairly far north um, in Alberta. Well, actually, our farm, believe it or not, is a geographical center of Alberta, but it's considered way north. Um, but uh, we don't have a lot of heat units, and we don't get that much cob developed. So um, we've had years when it's reasonably good. Um, we've never had an issue where we have any concerns with acidosis, uh, which some people have that problem, but we don't, we just don't get enough, um, for, you know, we haven't got enough heat units to really get, get really good cob development. So it uh, doesn't seem to affect what we can get out of the, you know, the production that we can get out of the corn. Thanks, Kelly. Um, this question is for Steve. Using 2014 winter as an example, have you ever used the snow as your fence instead of out move, moving a wire? Yes, 2014 was some uh, pretty deep snow. Uh, we were actually bale grazing that winter, so I didn't have the issue with uh, you know deep snow on a swath grazing. We were bale grazing for that winter, um, but the problem I had was the snow got deeper than my blue pigtail posts. So those step-ins that we talked about, it was deeper than that. You'd go out there and, you know, it would snow the night, that night and the next day, every, the whole wire and fence and everything's under the snow. 
So what I had to do is go back to my old fashioned kind of post, um, a chunk of rebar with a plastic insulator on it so I could make the wire taller. Uh, because they, yeah, they were still going through the snow getting to those next set of bales because they couldn't see the wire, they were doing it. So yeah, I just had to make my, my post taller. So for that rest of that season, I switched back to the rebar and plastic insulators. Wonderful. Um, so we have, who did I call on? <laughs> uh, Russell, do you want to, to mention your experience using aircraft cable? Uh, yeah, we just started using aircraft cable. We get it from the co-op here and it's like 16th of an inch aircraft cable and it works awesome. It's way better with the wildlife. Cool. I, I used aircraft cable one year. Um, I kept driving through it because I couldn't see it. <laughs> I had trouble. Um, so I went back to polywire, but uh, it was harder to, to roll up and deal with the next spring too. So, But uh, lots of guys use it. I hear uh, lots of people loving loving it so i just found it's way more durable than the poly wire yep. especially with deer and stuff because we corn graze too so you get deer and coyotes and everything going through and it just seems and you can splice it just like high tensile wire and it you don't get any shorts so that's what we found one of the one of the things that i saw with the aircraft cable is that the snow especially when we get the hoarfrost it would just weigh it all down really badly like it wasn't strong enough to hold up against the hoarfrost i haven't found that you can get it a lot tighter than the poly cable <laughs> so i mean it doesn't you don't have the sagging as much makes sense yeah great um we had terry's ipad you have your hand up if you want to go ahead feel free the question for Steve. Steve, Terry here from Cameron. How you doing? Okay. Um, I've got a, a 20 joule fencer on my system at Riverlands here. And we've had it since, I forget the year you told us how to do this. It was back about <laughs> 10 years ago. But it, it now is starting to lose power for some reason. Our fence has not changed. We keep our, you know, the rotation that we work on. And uh, now the fencer itself is starting to weaken up. Have you ever had that issue? Most of my fencers end up just kind of dying. Um, you might be getting, you know, a few more t small shorts along the way, and you're just having a little bit more losses all the time. Um, but yeah, a fencer will only lasts so long. Normally for me, it just all of a sudden stops working. But uh, yeah, what, what's your kilovolt still at? Well, I mean, early in the spring when the grass is not long, I can get it up to like 9,000. Yeah. Um, and that's on uh, a 20 joule. I got a, a two 12 joules as well. And they're all, they all run around, you know, eight to 10,000, somewhere in that neck of the woods. But what's happening is I've, I'm separating my fences down. I'm, I'm downsizing them like you had talked about earlier tonight. I'm, I mean, I started out at 75 miles of wire. And now I'm down to probably 40. Yeah. Uh, you know, you know, you know, we've got 38 paddocks in on Riverlands, you know, yep. in system. Um, so I was just wondering if, if you've had trouble with the fences, do I need to buy new ones or can you rebuild them? Or? Have you ever tried changing the ground rods? Cause your ground mm -hmm. rods might be getting, you know, uh, less conductivity, less connections where the wires attached to the ground rod, right? You could be losing out a little bit on that side too. Oh, it could be. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's yeah. Maybe that's the issue. I don't know. I just thought I'd ask if you had that. Yeah. I mean, the idea, I mean, if you were to use a, a piece of rebar pounded in the ground and connect your wire to it, right. It'll, it'll get rusting. 
That's why we I, use galvanized ground which rods I, so they don't rust. Yeah. But which I used, they're all they're all galvanized rods. Yeah. But still, the connection might be out. Even just disconnect it and reconnect the ground yeah. rod, yeah. right? Just to get a. Yeah. You know, yeah. I've done that on my solar systems, right? The wires are connected, but you wiggle them and then all of a sudden it kicks on, right? right? Just the connection gets a little corrosion or something and you're not quite, don't quite have the same connection you used to. Right. Okay. Could be. Well, well thank Thanks, Steve. Yep. Okay. So next up, um, we have Kay Hopefuls wanting to know, has anyone else had issues with two inch of frozy, frozen sandy loam soil um, that they've had? Just for curious, curiosity's sake, not being able to get a good ground on the cows. We've got a clay soil around us. So, uh, I mean, it doesn't really matter the type of soil you have uh, so much. It, you, you might have to change and adapt. Like we've talked about a couple of systems already by putting that second wire up. Um, that's a way to get around it. And also, honestly, that training fence, that, that really does a lot. Even if you've got no power in the fence, um, if you've got that training fence where they go to water and they keep getting hit by it, um, boy, you don't even have to have it turned on out in the field and they respect that fence. So um, that was one of my you know, biggest learning moments is when I learned how to do that training fence. Kelly? Yeah, I, I don't know. I, you know, maybe we haven't had that issue, but maybe... We have normally fairly wet soil, and I think maybe that would help. Like if you were really dry, it might not be quite as good. I don't know. Yeah, Just... yeah in a really dry environment too, put that ground rod right in your water source. Yeah. Put it in the bottom of the ditch. Put it, uh, um, you know, a great place for a ground rod is actually, you know, underneath a silage pile. Uh, in the wintertime, if you put a ground rod in through the silage pile on the edge, uh, it doesn't freeze underneath that silage pile and it's full of moisture. So uh, that's a great ground rod too. An old uh, drilled well or a culvert that's you know buried in the ground deep. Um, those make great grounds uh, because they're you know eight ten feet in the ground and uh, and uh, all, always wet down there like a like a board well. So yeah, the ground is is important. Um, it's the drier you are, the the more important that ground is. See, uh, Kelly and I are both from the fairly wet environments. I would say we're well, 15 inches growing season, but we've got a clay soil that, that holds moisture pretty well. Um, so ground, ground rods are not that as important to me because I, you know, I can stick them in the dugout and then I, I don't even have to worry about it. So, but dry, dry land. Yes. You really have to worry about uh, your ground rods. Next up, we have Larry Holcomb from Georgia. Uh, I guess I'm the only one from the South, but I enjoy listening to y'all. Hey, don't question because I didn't know how to spell it. What is hard frost or hey? Okay. Is that like free, freezing rain, freezing sleep for us? You need to come up and have a look. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually, it's, be it's beautiful actually. Um, in the mornings when we get some kind of humidity in the air, uh, yeah. the hoar frost will like stick to everything. So you'll see Christmas trees or even animals, their hair coats will be, will be basically all white because the hoar frost kind of sticks to them. And what it does is that moisture will get on your electric fence and then it'll double the weight of it. And all of a sudden that, you know, that electric fence that was sitting here will now be sagging down to here um, just because of the hoar frost on it. So make some really beautiful pictures. <laughs> we get freezing rain here and it just kind of sticks and freezes and it breaks power lines and everything. But y'all yeah. need to send coats. It's going to be 20 degrees in Georgia. So we have, we don't have that many coats, you know? Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, That's it, really warm. 
And it, our average temperature is 30 to 50 during the winter, so we're, we're blessed. I'd love to listen to talk to y'all when it gets down below zero. I just, I think I'd move. Georgia's a great place, y'all. Come on down. Hey. Try minus. Just, just not right now during COVID. Yeah. <laughs> last winter, last winter we hit minus 48 Celsius. Oh, God. What, what is that Fahrenheit? Minus. Cold. 50 uh, or something minus cold yeah really cold <laughs> minus Great. cold i think Thank i you. think minus 45 is both fahrenheit and celsius about the same minus 40 40 minus, minus 40, 40 is yeah. same big we have seen 10 when it gets 10 we hibernate so <laughs> uh, get above that is not even below thank y'all we enjoy your show uh, awesome. thank you again great larry uh so next up we have grace grace do you want to ask a question Sure. By the way, I don't know why I'm logged in as Grace because I'm Real, so it's all good. <laughs> um, Jesse, yeah, question for Kelly there. So, you're, you know, not having a long growing season, you talk about having immature corn. Like, what do you exactly mean by immature corn? Well, there's cob development, but they're not filled out yet. Okay. Like not at all? Uh, well, there, there'd be... You know, it varies from one year to the next. You know, we've, um, you know, this it's nothing that you could combine, you know, if you were going to harvest. Um, so, you know, we do have a short growing season, but we also have very long days. So, you know, uh, in the in the summertime, you know, we're, you know, in the, the end of June, where we've got daylight till 1130. So does do the seed get past dent? Uh, close to dent. close, not even past dent, because I think isn't dent like fifty percent maturity? Probably maybe more more yeah. than that or something. Okay, yeah. so yeah. so part of the the question then, do you get of like what is your cost? Because to us, you know, basically you want to get you know as much production out of that cob because that's like what seventy percent of the value of that corn grazing, isn't it? Okay, so last year, for example, it wasn't maybe the best growing year we've ever had. We certainly had better years. So we got 201 cow days per acre on average on about 900 acres. So so that's a 1,250-pound a cow. On an acre, we got 200 days. Okay. And our cost per day was a dollar and fifty-eight cents per cow. So that included the what the land would be worth as if you were to rent the land, and all the cash costs and well, basically all the costs. So that was on our particular farm last year. Hybrid seed and all that. Yeah, yeah. So, okay. so. It's, uh, you know, that I would like it to be like at a dollar and a quarter, but, um, you know, that's what it was last year. Okay. Do you find that you lose a lot like this, this year for whatever reason, we, there's hardly any leaves, the stalks are all busted in half. Um, and so I would say we lost half of the tonnage of like, you know, fiber that's kind of gone, gone away. Um, does that happen up your way or is it just this yeah. year? Well, yeah, I don't think it's, we're, we're losing any that way. Like, where are you from? Oh, Southern Manitoba. Okay. Um, 
you know, I've seen it like a big wind come up and you some of it'll blow, but it won't go very far. You'll lose some leaves that'll break and, and blow away. But um, I don't know. Um, I it, to me it it's worked fairly well for us. We're we're pretty happy with it. Um, no, there's there's been years when we do just as well with a, a cereal crop on a cost per day, but then you get into some of these problems. Uh, like Steve talked about a few minutes ago where the, the swath gets either too deep as, under too much snow or it gets frozen down or something. Right. Have you ever tried OP corn, open pollinated corn? No. Okay. Well, thank you so much uh, for answering that and uh, Merry Christmas to all of you guys. And thank you for hosting that, Stephen and Amber. <laughs> Merry Christmas to you too. Uh, next up, we have Marshall. You want to go ahead, Marshall? Noah. Uh, yeah, I'm Noah. My, my cousin's Marshall. Anyways, uh, Merry <laughs> Christmas, folks. Uh, what was that? Swath grazing. So you kind of just ration that off, you know, give them a little bit of the swaths and like you would in bale grazing, correct? Yes. Swath grazing, it would be a crop like uh, oats or barley or a combination. Last winter, we had actually oats and peas together with some volunteer canola, which I really like that. Uh, the more polyculture for me, the better. Uh, and then it gets swathed. And then we go out there and we, we, I put up my, my three long cross fences to make my four paddocks. And then we'll just strip graze down each one of those paddocks, ration off, you know, three or four days worth of feed at a time. When you're done one of the rectangles, you move to the next one. And I always move away from the water source if, if we're using a water source. Um, and then you just keep, keep doing it that way. Your fence is shorter to, to move, right? If you've divided your field up that way and then uh, um, if they do happen to get through one they've only you know kind of trampled on one of those rectangles not the whole field yeah. um, when, I, when I first started swath grazing I tried doing a, a you know a cross fence all the way across a quarter uh, that's a lot of posts and a lot of, a lot of wire to be hauling across there so that 660 feet like Kelly and I talked about before that's kind of an ideal um, size of my my fence that I want to be moving so that makes sense. Then, uh, another question that I would have is when do you cut uh, whatever you're going to be swath grazing? Like even if you're going to do prairie hay or the stuff that you did, do you go for feed value or how do you go about that? For myself, it's usually a uh, salvaged crop. So, I mean, I've had a few, few years where I've had uh, neighbors that specifically seed a crop for me. So I get the whole crop, but lots of times it's just the residues out of the back of a combine. Um, so it's just, you know, whatever's left over. Um, last year was actually a salvaged crop. Um, it just wasn't maturing in time. The oats, it was September already and the oats weren't even close to being mature. So we cut it down. So I had a full crop, but I, my situation, I don't really get a choice. It's whatever I can find and whoever's offering me what at the time. Right. So uh, Kelly. Uh, ideally I would do it the milk stage swathing and then, uh, if you get it more mature, then especially with uh, depending on the crop, but they'll they'll want to leave a lot of straw behind, and uh, you know some some of the oat varieties are pretty tough to get them to clean it up. Yeah, like so, the grass we, for us when we're trying to bale, and you know if it gets rained on a bunch, some of the windrows get pretty moldy. Was kind of my question: if you, how do you go about doing that? If you wait to later in the year and let it so, be more mature. Well. Um, like uh, we, if we're seeding a crop like oats, we will seed it in June 
um, and so that we can swath it about the 10th or 15th of September uh, in the milk stage. Because if you go, um, if you seed it earlier, then you got to swath it in August. And, uh, you know, I've had some discussions with people that disagree with me, but some years we just get way too much moisture in, in September and we get a lot of spoilage in the swath, so we don't like that. But the, the negative on that is that you're not using all the sunlight because you're seeding later. So we've, we've gone to, um, we've done some triticale, which is a, a longer maturing plant. And uh, you can seed that in May and still have it in milk in, you know, in September, early September. So, and it produces way better. Like the, the triticale performance uh, or the yield is really, really good. Alrighty. Thank you. Merry Christmas, folks. Yep. Your mic's off, Amber. There we go. Thanks, Marshall. Um, the next question that we have is from Big Tom Perkins. Kelly, what kind of corn are you grazing? Non-GMO? No, it's all GMO. It's all Roundup Ready corn. Is there a breed? Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Well, we, we need the weed control. Or at least we think we do. <laughs> that's fair um okay the next question have you ever used a power grazer electric fence system no 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 sorry we're not much help with that that's the the trailer unit that all comes as one system right i heard they're pretty good i know people that are using them that say they work well so but i haven't done it Okay, uh, next up we have Pat Toner. That would be Colin Toner, I'm guessing. I know that name. Can <laughs> <laughs> you see us, Amber? We can, yes, so, and we can hear you. Okay, my question to Kelly is, when do you seed your corn? And then uh, my other comment is just for in Saskatchewan where lots of guys push up tree lines and stuff, um the neighbor's corn here on the outside edge there the snow is probably five feet deep i bet but anyways my question was is just when does kelly see this corn hey uh, as soon as we can so you know 10th 10th of may we try to get started uh you know often we don't get going until the 15th um we've seeded as late as the first of june and i would like to stop seeding corn on the 20th of may but you know, sometimes we just don't get it done. So if I could seed it all between the 10th and 20th of May, that's when I would do. That'd be my preference. Okay. So anytime we go beyond that, I think we're losing yield. Yeah. Right on. Thanks guys, Merry Christmas. Thanks Colin, Merry Christmas. Uh, next up, this is actually a question that I've had asked a couple times privately already. So, um, any plans to have a networking night about ranching off the grid? Uh, interested in how you manage that with your solar panels, setup, equipment used, all of that type of thing. So, I think that's kind of a question, but also a comment. Um, we, I've heard that from a couple people tonight. So, Steve, that might be something we have to do. Okay, soon. let me write it on the <laughs> calendar here. We'll pick a night. So, so far, we're booked up into February already with topics and speakers already. So uh, it'll be after then. But yeah, that we could do one of those. 
<laughs> um, next up, we have Nadon. Uh, what is your experience grazing standing crop versus in swaths? For me, I guess the the reason we swath it is to prevent nitrate poisoning. Um, with our cereal crops, our oats, our you know barley, whatever we're, we're we're taking, if the killing frost hits that in the fall, the roots keep taking up nitrates, but the plants stop photosynthesizing, so it can't expel it. Uh, I don't know all the science behind it, but then you can get uh, nitrate poisoning. Um, I've never actually, you know, had it in any of my fields, but we always swath it, you know, before the killing frost. But I do have some neighbors or some friends that have had some really high nit nitrates when that killing frost hit early and caught them off guard. So really, I think that's the main reason why I would, why I swath. Other than that, I think I would leave it standing and, and go out and graze it just like my dormant season grazing. Kelly? Well, the reason to swath would be to to stop the growth or stop the, uh, you know, get the, get the crop in the right stage. Otherwise, if you leave it standing, it'll keep continuing maturing. That's true. You know, so uh, now if you have a salvage crop or, you know, something that for some reason didn't get swathed, I mean, we've had situations where crop, crop got left out over winter, couldn't be harvested because the ground was too wet then I think you could just go in there and, and graze it. I think you, your utilization maybe wouldn't be as good, but I, I don't know for sure. Awesome. That leads really nicely into our next question. Uh, when you get a salvage crop, how do you build a perimeter fence? Uh, perimeter fence. Basically, I do a two-wire high tensile with wood posts. I try and find... There's so many grain farmers around us that rip out fences, so I try and find used fence posts. For a buck a post or two bucks a post and I'll run around with a I'll rent the post pounder uh, in a couple of days I can have a perimeter fence put around that and then if it's a two-wire electric I can put them both hot or if it gets you know to the point where I needed a negative wire in there as well I, I have the option of a negative wire so Kelly so all of our perimeter fences are five wire uh, four four barbed wires and one hot wire uh, we just, we just want the backup if something happens and the cattle are out, we don't want them running through the neighbor's yard. So, so we do that as a, you know, just a policy on our operation that our perimeter fences are, I guess, a traditional fence. Permanent. I think a good point to bring up there is the difference between when you own your own land versus leasing someone else's. If you're running someone else's grain land, then you, you might not have that That's ability. Right. Um, so this will be the last question before we kind of just go into a little more of a freestyle networking. We turn off the recording. Um, Samuel, do you want to to speak to your question here about robotic fencing? Yeah, I heard like I seen back in the days, uh, Lely a company the same would do uh, the milk robots. They were kind of developing like a system with four uh, robots that they were moving along together with a fence, and uh, they were moving cows like all around the pasture and I don't know it really worked but I don't know like because you're more in that kind of system like did you heard any development about those kind of systems or not at all yeah I've heard of that so it's just something that moves the fence automatically um, uh, I've seen that work really good with a, a pivot irrigation system where you've got your pivot moving and, and basically your fence is attached to your pivot that that works great but the robotic one no I've 
I've never, you know, I've heard of it, but I've never seen it. And I think definitely on our place, we've got too many variables of terrain and trees and shrubs and bushes. And, and I don't know, that would be, you know, if you've got perfectly square fields and, you know, you can move that fence perfectly down on flat land, it might work. But I'm more excited about the virtual fencing where you put a, a, a shock collar around their neck and, and you can basically do, you know, regenerative grazing from your laptop. Um, that's what I'm looking for. Um, we're trying to get a research project done with a herd of goats, hopefully here soon, um, with some virtual fencing. That, that's, that's what uh, I'm excited about. Kelly? Yeah, I, I, you know, my crystal ball would be, you know, 10 or 15 years from now, that's what we'll be doing. It's just the, using the callers, virtual system. Uh, you know, you never know how fast this technology develops, but I think it's going to come. Nice, thank you. I didn't I didn't hear about that system, but that's true. That's really nice uh, idea, I think. Yeah, it's kind of like a, a shock collar on a dog, where they know where the line is, and they they never go past it because they know there's a beep on the collar, and then there's a you know a little electric shock or something. But uh, with the virtual fencing, then but you know by a satellite or GPS or whatever it is, you can move the fence, right? So you want to you've got them in a paddock. You just go onto your computer and virtually move the fence and you know that'll slowly push them across into the new piece and then it'll hold them in that piece just just through you know no fences whatsoever definitely still have a perimeter fence out there but uh yeah virtual fencing you could do ditches you could do all sorts of stuff thanks samuel so steve if you want to do closing remarks okay well thank you everybody uh we're not going to kick you off because this is a networking session but the official part of the networking night is done. Thank you very much to Kelly um, for all your uh, insights and experiences. Um, very much appreciate it. Again, if anybody wants to uh, check out Kelly's uh, uh, farm, um, OLE Farms, I'm sure you've got a website and a Facebook page and um, uh, maybe we'll add it onto the bottom here in, in chat here in a second, but thank you very much, Kelly. Uh, thanks to Gateway Research Organization for uh, hosting us and uh, bring us in. Everybody, if you've got a nonprofit organization that's close to you that's doing agricultural research, uh, I highly recommend you go, you know, see what they're up to and, and become a member and even maybe, maybe be a director and help guide the direction of where they're going. Um, yeah, and uh, thanks for everybody that came out. We will uh, start taking random questions and chit-chatting. Kelly, if you want to stick around, you're more than welcome. Um, but anybody, you know, now you can fade off or if you've got other stuff to do, that's perfectly all right. We're, we're technically officially done for the night. Awesome. Thanks, Kelly. Do you, or do you have any uh, closing remarks, Kelly? No, I did just, maybe I just comment that, you know, if you're having difficulty with winter grazing, just don't give up. It's possible.